Good evening, everyone. <laughs> oh my goodness, I um, definitely just had a computer crash. We are broadcasting live out of New Orleans, F 105.3 FM and United Public Radio Network. And it is Monday, uh, February 20th, 2023. So welcome everyone. Um, I'm glad you're joining me. It is also um, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So I'm sure that is where most of the city is actually. Um, I know I would be, I'm, I'm currently in the Midwest, however. Um, as you all know, I am in the middle of um, moving. So I just had to relocate my um, computer and everything after I had a crash in the other room because I don't think I, I got very good Wi-Fi service. So um, I do wanna thank uh, Carnation for sponsoring my show tonight, as well as the network. And um, I started, I've been doing a lot of research uh, for genealogy. And I've, so I've been going through, I love old newspapers anyways. I love old postcards, um, old memoirs of people, journals, things like that. From, I, I mean, from like 16, 17, 1800. Um, oh, which reminds me. Also, the Salem Witch Trials, um, the historical anniversary for that is coming up. The actual date, uh, I believe, was March 1st, um, so uh, 1692. So we are at, what, 331 years uh, since then. So a picture popped up on my timeline for Facebook I was actually, I have a lot of family on the East Coast. I was, um, <laughs> I took, I got married in, uh, I'm, I'm divorced now, but I got married um, in Massachusetts and I had taken pictures at the cemetery and at, um, you know, the, the famous, a lot of the famous museums and uh, like the judge's house, the black house that, um, is in Salem, the, the cemetery, obviously, um, this week, probably 10 years ago, um, which is interesting. Well, it would have been like 11 years ago now, but which is interesting because that was, that would have been the, um, one, like on the anniversary. I didn't even realize it. I didn't even realize I was there during that time. So goes to show. Um, so getting into this, I do need to post, I don't think my, my link is showing up on Facebook. So I'm going to post that over there. How is everyone? It's, um, it's been a crazy year already. I mean, especially for, oh, for everyone. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard about the incident in the United States. Um, in Ohio, um, the the train derailment, things like that. Um, but I don't want to talk about those things because, again, I'm I'm trying to go. I don't like negativity. I don't like I don't like creating fear. Uh, I don't like propaganda, things like that. So um, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, here 
anymore. So as much, <laughs> it's hard to stay away from that. Um, but um, I've always been, my channel's a variety channel. So, you know, as you all, if you've, if you've joined me in the past or listened to archives, I've had any, I've had comedians and musicians and all kinds of different people. So, um, well, it says on Facebook that this is happening now and I'm here. So I don't understand um, why it crashed before. Either way, we are here now and I will, I'm, I'm running late too. That's why, that's why everybody probably gave up on me. So, <laughs> of course. Um, so what, one of the first stories I found, which is creepy because I was, I was looking at, um, classical horror movies and which I, I used to watch TV, believe it or not, you know, back when we had like three channels and um, I didn't really have a choice, uh, but everybody watched the same movies, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights, we even had Up All Night um, in the US. I, I don't, oh my gosh, it was Gilbert Godfrey. And there was another lady with, who had an annoying voice. Um, it was on, I want to say like TBS. I'm, I'm looking it up right now because that's something I should up all night. Um, Rhonda Shear. And it ran from 80, 89 through 98. Um, it was a late night showcase of cult and B movies. So as I mentioned before, I'm going to be starting, you know, when I connect my, my webpage and everything, I'm going to be starting a, um, like a movie book club because I like exploring those. Um, and there were, it was on, It doesn't say here. It was, oh, well, USA. I guess that, yeah, that was the channel, USA. Um, I forgot that that was an actual, but they had like the low budget uh, shows late at night, which was hilarious, I thought. Um, and I have learned how to use StreamYard better. So I'm trying to do a a better job interacting in the chat room obviously when i don't have a guest um this month it's been easier since um since i've kind of taken a break from um you know from i'm sorry my dog from guests since i can't really focus on that um with being in between moving and such so it's helped me learn i know i know crazy theory Link stream. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Let me get that. Is welcome, William. 
Okay. So as I was saying, one of the, one of the first stories, and th so I wanted this to be kind of like a reaction video because I haven't, um, oh my goodness. That was ridiculous. One moment, okay. So I, uh, I haven't read through all of these. I apologize. Somebody just came in. Sh I don't know why, why, why that happened. Um, but somebody just like hacked into Streamyard and sent a very naughty picture. Well, I mean, it was a video, but like in behind, in the backstage studio. So that's fun, isn't it? Do you all do those kind of things? You wouldn't, my, my, my listeners wouldn't do those things, would it? <laughs> would you? <laughs> so, um, so I have blocked them, hopefully. Um, but that happened. So, um, so this story, how do I block this dude? He keeps coming back. Oh no. Uh, either way, this story reminds me of the Bates. Um, and no, is that the one with what's the story? What's the movie where she uh, she changed the guy to the bed, the author? Anyways, that's the one that that I was thinking of. So, and and it's actually the article was actually called "Chained to a Bed." Um, this was from the Illustrated Police News uh, from Greater London, July 9th, eighteen seventy. And so, I'm going to read them. An extraordinary case of sequestration has just been disclosed before the court of Assizes of the Monche. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. A man having been kept concealed, chained to a bed for a period of 40 years by his own father first and by a brother afterwards. In the year 1800, a farmer named Bullard lived with his wife and four sons, Charles, Jacques, Francois and Julian in the commune of Romany. Some signs of a deranged, or Julian, who was then 22 years of age, had some, shown some signs of a deranged mind. The results of fright while walking out at night and the father, to escape the trouble of guarding the young man, had him chained by the two wrists on a bed from which the son was never moved. This dude's dad chained him to a bed because he got scared while walking outside, I assume that meant, at night. Yes, yes, we've come a long way with humanity. So the result of the captivity was that Julian's limbs were at length completely paralyzed from the inaction, and he became a perfect idiot. 
The father died in 1852, having previously shared his fortune between the three other sons on condition that Charles and Francois should each pay a sum of 200 francs annually for the wants of their brother, while Jacques was to board and lodge him. I tell you, the unfortunate man continue, continued chained to his bed until 1804, when, as he could no longer make any movement, the shackles were taken from him. But it was not till the present year that the facts came to the ears of the ju judicial authorities. So this, he was chained to the bed until 1804. And then it said it wasn't until the present year that the facts came. So this was written in 1870. A descent was made at the house, and Julian, now over 60 years of age, was found lying almost naked and in miserable condition on a litter of straw placed in a dark hole for concealment. Jacques Boulard, being arrested, was now brought up for trial and pleaded in his defense that he had only continued a state of things commenced by his father. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty, and he was set at liberty. Wow, that's crazy. So, oh my gosh, how do I block this person? So this guy's father, chained him to a bed for getting scared while he walked outside. And then after the father died, the brothers continued to do it until the man was in his 60s. So for 40 years, can you imagine? I assume by that time he no longer spoke or anything as well. So my next one, which is hilarious, a child stolen by a monkey. Um, this is also in the Illustrated uh, Police News of Greater London in 1870 time frame and got hacked again. Um, same time frame. Um, so a local paper reports a somewhat remarkable case of purloining a child which occurred in the small village of Manxbridge in Somershire on Monday last. It appears that Mr. Judcote, a gentleman of independent means, has for a long time past kept a large monkey who has been accustomed to range over his master's garden and grounds as the creature was esteemed harmless and to use a sporting phrase, was warranted to be free from vice. On Monday last, Mr. Hemingway, or Mrs. Hemingway, near neighbor of Mr. Jedcoats, while walking in her garden, was surprised and horrified at beholding Holch. Mr. Jedcoats' monkey suddenly snatched her baby from the arms of her youngest sister, Clara, who, as a special favor, had been permitted to take charge of the infant. The monkey, gibbering and chattering, rushed off with its prize and gained the roof of an outhouse with very little difficulty. Mr. Hemingway was driven to the uttermost extremity of despair. See, it says Mr. there, but I assume that they meant Mrs. Um, and she vainly strove to repossess, repossess herself of her last born. She beheld, to her infinite horror, the monkey pass over the roof of the outhouse until 
he and his burden were both lost to sight. So they called the baby a burden to the monkey. <laughs> the anxious mother at once hastened to the house of her neighbor, Mr. Judcoat, who appeared to be as much troubled as herself at the who appeared to be as much troubled as herself the unlooked for disaster his manservants were dispatched in every direction in search of holch who was however too wary to allow his hiding place to be discovered in the meantime the parents of the child were kept in a constant state of anxiety and trepidation it was impossible to say what had befallen the child. The day passed over with, without any news of either Holch or the infant, and it was by the merest chance that both the fugitives were discovered by some farm laborers in an adjacent wood towards eight o'clock in the evening. At this time, Holch seemed to be tired of his companion, whom he purposely resigned to the farm servants. The delight of the parents upon regaining their child may be more readily imagined than described. So they were both considered fugitives. Yes, this infant and the monkey, which is, oh my goodness. Okay. So hopefully none of, um, none of these comments are from this uh this blocked or this user i blocked because um it was very inappropriate either way hilarious user you're lucky i didn't show that because i might do something like that we're not necessarily a children's show nowadays um, so I'm allowed to do things like that. I can even cuss if I want to. They shouldn't give me such um, permissions, really. So this one's hilarious, okay? I read part of this. I didn't finish it because I didn't want you all to. Uh, I wanted to be able to react at the same time as you all. And let's see. Okay. Extraordinary scene at a wedding. Yes. The Times of Friday last contained the following humorous account of a violent assault committed by an infuriated and indignant wife upon her faithless husband. Oh, yes. A French paper relates a thrilling scene which lately occurred in a Parisian marriage. A couple presented themselves to be married, the bride about 18 years of age and possessed of considerable personal attractions. The bridegroom, an extremely small man, aged 45. <laughs> what? Okay, this is, this is from 1870 also. So, so basically they're saying the female was very attractive and she was marrying a small man aged 45. Okay. When the ceremony was concluded, the door of the hall was burst open and a woman of gigantic statute, accompanied by a thin damsel of 15, burst into the room and elbowed her way through the semicircle of guests. <laughs> Wretch, scoundrel, thief, she cried, addressing the husband, who turned, who turned as white as a sheet. This is how you leave me in the lurch? 
who have sighed during 15 years for the day when I might call myself your wife? I'm assuming she was pretty upset. Yes. <laughs> um, saying this, she seized the unhappy man by the collar and jerked him up under her left arm as though he were a crush hat, taking no notice of his struggles. She addressed the mayor in a voice of thunder. Do I, do I arrive too late? The marriage is concluded, the re replied the mayor, and I request you to release Mr. Augustine and to retire. Not, said the giantess, without giving his desserts to the villain who leaves me with this girl here. No, no, that girl is not mine, held the little man. He had better... <laughs> He had better have remained silent. The giantess frantically raised him in the air and whirled him around her head. I'm just picturing this. I'm picturing this, <laughs> I'm picturing this giantess just like flailing this little man, as they called him, around her head, right? Like a helicopter. So, um, Repeat what you have said, she shrieked. This child who is as like you as one pea is another, is she yours or not? Mr. Augusta did not open his mouth. His executioner then seized his nose with her left hand and wrung it violently. About this time, two of the guests, moored by the entreaties of the bride, attempted to interfere. But, but the enraged woman, using the bridegroom as a weapon, and brandishing him at arm's length, charged her opponents with such fury that she put them speedily to flight. Call the police, cried the mayor. <laughs> you need not give yourself the trouble. Hoarsely ejaculated the giantess. I'm quoting this verbatim, actually. I will let go the, the rascal of my own accord. Here, my beauty, addressing the bride, is your little bit of a man. I have not broken him. We have no further business here. <laughs> Follow me, Baptistine. And so, saying, and so saying, she flung down her victim at the feet of two agents of police, who at the moment appeared at the door. I go, she added, but let him ever appear before me in his wife's arm, and I will take him between my thumb and forefinger and make but one mouthful of him. This little incident cast quite a gloom over the assembled guests, and no one dared even to pick the feigning bridegroom from the floor until the last echo of the heavy footsteps of the injured fair one had died away in the distance, when they raised him to his feet and in solemn silence took their departure. <laughs> so what would you all do? Can you imagine some crazy? I can't. I can't. <laughs> crazy lady bust through the door. But the way they're describing these people, okay, this. Why can't this still be a thing in media? Like, why? <laughs> no, there'd be too many lawsuits. There'd be so many. Okay. See, I'm not doing all negative. This is this is a good thing. This one's called Life Saving Politeness. Um, this is from April of 1901, the Stockton Evening and Sunday Records, Stockton, California. 
patriotism and politeness are great virtues, and a Japanese physician, Dr. Ayama, owes his life to the fact that he possessed them both in high degree. He had caught the plague and was dying for the need of food, which in his delirium he refused to take. His nurse was in despair, but finally conceived the idea of playing upon his patriotism by filling a glass with liquid nourishment and then offering to drink to the health of the, the Mikado. This was repeated until, ardent patron as he was, the doctor felt that he had honored his sovereign enough. Then his politeness was appealed to, the nurse proposing a toast and reproaching the sick man for not joining in it. In this way, the patient's strength was maintained until the delirium subsided and he became convalescent, youth's companion. So I assume he was, oh my gosh. Again, people keep popping up in the studio like, <laughs> um, but it's not, but what is this liquid nourishment? So is she offering him alcohol? Are they drinking like bone broth? I don't know. Did he just get drunk and then decided that he felt better? Because that's what it sounds like. Um, but I thought it was interesting because during the plague, it's much like, you know, um, Spanish flu and the current virus and all of that, um, where they say the best thing for you is actually because you need um, nourishment. So one of the best things is is bone broth or vegetable broth. If you know if you're um, vegan or vegetarian, but um, but even um, if it was alcohol, so that's what that's an interesting thing as well because drinking certain spirits you know mead wine things like that goes all the way that that dates back throughout almost every culture through through viking times um because it was very healing to they they used it after battles um for injuries all kinds of things and it has you know of course the alcohol yes they got drunk so they couldn't feel anything but um you know if if a person's been sick beer, mead, wine, they have a lot of antioxidants, um, carbs, sugar, you know, things like that. So I can see that, I guess. So she, she nursed him back to health um, since he was refusing to eat by drink, by getting him drunk, basically. Nice. Um, this one was interesting. It was, it, it talked about the vitality of germs, um, what becomes of them after their victim is dead. Um, in a recent number of a German journal devoted to bacteriology, an interesting summary is presented of certain results attained by Dr. Klein in the course of a long series of experiments made lately in which Dr. Klein endeavored successfully to ascertain what becomes of disease germs after the death of their victim. That's interesting. Um, I've thought about this before because, yes, here's a story coming. When I was, when I was a freshman in college, um, had to have been a freshman, I took, um, you know, biology as required at most schools and when we had um, the anatomy part and we we had to 
observe cadavers. Um, I will never forget. Um, the, our, our instructor had a scalpel and, and was, you know, told us to all come over around the table and we're, we're standing very close. And they don't prepare you for these things when somebody cuts into a dead body. I mean, unless you're, you know, a coroner or, or used to these things. Um, because there's a lot of trapped air and gases and fluids and, and everything. And so a lot of times those, you know, just go everywhere on my classmates. and. Um, so that's the first time I ever considered what happens to germs after a person's dead, because when you're exposed to those germs, <laughs> but so, um, so he did this experiment. And it says these experiments had a very decided practical value as the conditions which, which they prove to exist dispose effectively of one of the arguments which has been often used to advocate of cremation. These latter have held that diseased germs could retain their vitality for an indefinitely long period in the buried body and that therefore cemeteries, in addition to being harmful because of the decaying organic matter, which they contained were positively dangerous because they acted um, an immense storage reservoir for the bacteria of the, the different diseases. However, Dr. Klein's results correct this mistaken idea. In order to carry out his experiments satisfactorily, he buried animals which had died from certain known diseases, disinterred the bodies at the end of varying periods, and examined the organs for bacteria. The bacillus of Asiatic cholera was still living at the end of 19 days, but after being buried for 28 days, no living specimen could be found. Um, the typhoid fever bacillus was able to exist for about the same length of time, while the germ which causes the bubonic plague was able to survive the internment of 17 days, but was never found living at the end of three weeks. The bacillus of consumption lives for but a short time after the death of its victim. Dr. Klein always found it without difficulty in the organs, but was never able to obtain a successful culture. What is, perha what is perhaps of even greater importance, he was never able to cause tuberculosis by injecting the bacteria thus found into the system of a healthy animal. But didn't they later learn that tuberculosis was actually uh, contracted by inhalation, meaning you had to get it in your, you had to actually get it in your lungs, opposed to it being injected, you know? So I don't think that that would conclude anything on that one. I wonder, I wonder if scientists have have made a current study of this. That would be interesting. Um, well, not really, because anytime scientists start screwing around with germs and bacteria, it usually it, it's it usually doesn't end well. So I retract that statement. Oh man, there. Th so I 
I'm sharing these not because I want a million emails about how sexist or racist or or any of those things that they are because this is this is in like 1960s and prior all the way back to you know 1800s things like that some of them 17 1600s um so obviously we we've come a very long way um since then and i'm by no means um racist or sexist or i i don't you know i believe equality and that um you know religion all of those things freedom freedom for everyone to believe in what what helps them be their best self so that is not what i'm trying to accomplish here i just thought some of these were were funny in the verbiage that was used so this one is from the spokane chronicles spokane washington april 1953 it's titled nice young thing gave him a lift okay <laughs> Perth Amboy, New Jersey, April 10th, uh, Hans Anderson, 67, was standing on the corner of New Brunswick Avenue and Cornell Street yesterday. A car pulled up, just randomly, this guy's just minding his own business, standing there, car pulled up and a young, beautiful woman got out to ask directions. It's a trap. <laughs> Suddenly, she started hugging and kissing me, Anderson told police. And then she told me I was a nice man and gave me a goodbye kiss. Okay, so so you're just standing there on the street. Some strange lady pulls up in a car. It's like a drive-by kissing, hugging. It's a it's a smugging, <laughs> quite literally. So this guy, this this girl pulls up, in the, and who else? Is, who's driving the car? Like, where did she? Was she driving the car? I have so many questions. So suddenly she's kissing him and then she says goodbye, right? And he's just, so, so his last statement, I was so excited and she was so nice that I didn't think about the wallet, he added. Anderson's wallet, gone of course, contained $450. <laughs> Stop, <laughs> it's so funny. Oh my goodness, my dog here. Okay, so, so this is how this is how I entertain myself on my time off. Here's one though I thought was interesting. So another one from Spokane, also from 1953. Remember that 1953, right? Pasadena, California, the telephone of the future. Okay, what? I mean, we didn't even have. I think flip phones. I didn't have a cell phone until I was um, in college. Um, you know, obviously I was in college in what, 90, like 99. Um, flip phones though, like we're still, my parents still have flip phone up until like a month ago for that matter. But anyways, um, people didn't think this was, they were even, considered or invented for years after. So 1953, Mark R. Sullivan, San Francisco, president and director of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company, said in an, ad in an address last night, just what form the future telephone will take is of course pure speculation. Here's my prophecy. It is final development. The telephone will be carried about by the individual, perhaps as we carry a watch today. 
so he's like smartwatches, right? It probably will require no dial or equivalent, and I think the users will be able to see each other if they want and they talk. FaceTime, video messaging, video calling, um, who knows, but what it may actually translate from one language to another. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so that was April of 1953. So next, I bet they'll have a language trans translation phone coming out probably in April this year. There might already be one. I don't know. I don't keep up with technology very much. So this one, would, pro would offend a lot of people nowadays. Um, so let me, let me pull the... the actual paper clipping up. So brunettes in favor. If you want masculine admiration or a blonde, dye your hair black. <laughs> what? So this is a real thing. <laughs> this is from the Philadelphia Times, by the way, um, from 18, from January of 1896. <laughs> it says, a statistician has discovered that the number of dark-haired girls who get married greatly exceed that of the fair ones. I knew. I knew I was screwed from the start. I just knew it. And in order to prove that this is owing to man's choice, not to the redundancy of brunettes among us, he proceeds to prove that an overwhelming majority of those women who live and die unmarried he is too gallant to call them old maids, have fair hair and blue eyes. Wow. <laughs> what? This is a little surprising for blondes are so much more confiding and inclined to sentiment than their dark sisters that one would have thought them likely to prove more attractive to men. But romance of feeling sometimes produces distaste for realities. <laughs> I can't. Perhaps the ordinary man fails to reach the ideal standard of maiden fancy, and this may be why so many golden-haired dreamers prefer to remain single, leaving the more practical dark lassies to make wives for the average males. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Where do they get this? Like, who does these statistics? Who who was making these studies back then? And were were women allowed to read papers? I'm gonna have to research that now. Like, <laughs> because none of the men in this town would ever have gotten married. Um, well, it's Philadelphia, so <laughs> if that were the case, so apparently there were a lot of blonde old maids as they called women who who didn't marry um how interesting so so there, so there's that one the next one um most of you have heard of this seen it it's it's been talked about um on a in a lot of historical Um, 
research anyways to prevent premature burial this was 1901 stockton california um, and but they were actually quoting a different paper according to the cincinnati inquirer practical demonstration was given recently in new york of a method of saving the lives of those prematurely buried the system is the invention of count michael and Car carnes carnesio of russia count well, they called him, they had a lot of weird, like, typos back in the day. Count, I think it's Carnicchio. Um, apparatus consists of a tube four inches in, in diameter, a box, and a few appliances for, signal, for signaling. Um, the tube is pinched over an aperture in the coffin, and the other end of it appears above the surface of the ground, where it is surmounted by the box. Through the tube passes a rod on the, the end in which inside the coffin is a bale. The slightest movement of the body in the coffin is communicated to the, to the rod, which in turn releases springs. And then the door of the box flies open, the bell, and then the bell rings. So basically, you know, you have your coffin, there's a tube in between the casket, obviously dirt on top. So in between the casket and the ground, basically, the, you know, outside layer of the ground and there's a tube with a box and if there's movement sensed the box so there's a box at the top the box opens and there's a bell inside the bell rings notifying people that um somebody in the in the casket might still be living so and then at night a lamp is placed overhead and in the event of the supposed dead recovering consciousness, there's a ray of reassuring light. The attention of the watchman of the cemetery may also be attracted by a rocket, which is automatically discharged. Okay, so... <laughs> so uh, oh my gosh. How have we survived this long? How, like, how has humanity survived on this planet for this long is my question <laughs> so okay so now we have was this and, and my question was this an actual like i get that it's a concept thing but i assume it was actually the the guy demonstrated it so it like he invented it so how often was this used was this employed with <laughs> with the dead with with recent burials yes that's what i'm trying to say so now now not only do we have a box that opens and rings a little bell then they added a lantern they're like oh that'll be good they'll 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 alert the night cemetery watchman granted mind you that remember lanterns back then were it were oil you know um we're fire. So this is a fire. <laughs> this is a lantern. And then they add a rocket. <laughs> Not always okay. So the box is going to pop open. And you got the bell ringing. 
and then there's a there's the lantern god knows that like that might catch some who knows something on fire what if what if the lid hits the lantern like how's this working right and then a, a rocket shoots off after that just to make sure the night watchman in case like in the event that he didn't have a heart attack or just completely pee his pants after witnessing. I mean, that would scare the hell out of me if I was like innocent. So, so in the event he's still conscious and can uh, go. So, what, what does he do then? Does he call other people? Like, do they start digging? How does this? Do they leave shovels by the grave? I don't understand. There's so many. <laughs> uh, yes. So this one. This is a very special one. And don't get any ideas, women, because I don't think this would be, uh, I'm pretty sure this wouldn't be legal nowadays, be so many reasons. So all, all the reasons. Um, but let's get into this one. It is called The Strangest Wedding That Ever Happened. Yes. Yes, you'll see. You'll see on this one. Um, I'm trying to find. <laughs> so this lady basically. Well, we will skip that one until it can pull up. Um, I'm going to constant use of the Ouija board drives seven people insane. We'll come back to the wedding one because I want you, I want you all to also see that one. Um, so this one is from the Long Beach Telegram, um, Long Beach Daily News, Long Beach, California, 1920, March 4th of 1920. So, um, a girl, age 15, uh, introduces the device and convinced other six of its spiritual power. So 15-year-old girl introduces six other people to a Ouija board. And let's see. So Martinez, California, March 4th, under observation in the insane world ward here today are seven persons who the police say were driven insane by constant use of Ouija boards. Among the unusual charges against them are that they held seances 24 hours long. Oh. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Okay. I have so many, like, what? I mean, these are teenagers, like teenagers in our era, like can't, you, you can't hold their attention for 24 minutes. How the hell are they gonna do something 24 hours straight? Okay, okay, getting back, getting back to this. So among the unusual, oh, I, um, that they burned $700 in currency to drive away evil spirits conjured up by the Ouija boards. That they lured little children into their house. Okay. Do these 15 year olds have parents? Like, what are they doing? What are we doing? <laughs> um, they lured little children into their house and shaved their hair. 
burning it to drive away the Ouija board spirits. Where'd they get that idea? Like why that they did not feed the children the stolen and that the children were found in the house in a starving condition? What? So how long, I wonder, I'm going to have to research into this one more because it, this is just a short article, but how long did this go on? That's what I'm saying. Where are authorities? Where are parents? Where, like, did kids back then, 15-year-olds, say, hey, we're going to do a sleepover? And, like, were they in an empty house? I mean, where was this taking place? Um, so the Ouija Board Development Center about... Adeline Bottini, 15, who is said to have introduced the boards and to have convinced the other six the spirits hovered over them day and night. When the police broke down the door, Mrs. Edward Moore screamed that her dead husband was there in spirit and he will kill you. Wow. Adeline had divested herself of much of her clothing the better to communicate with the spirits. And when the police arrived, she tried to throw off the remainder of her clothing. The raid was made when neighbors complained that their children had been stolen. Others found in the house were Mrs. Jose Saldivine and three members of her family and Mrs. Sangine Bottini, mother of Adeline. There were four Ouija boards in the place. Okay, so the 15-year-old wasn't, she was with, a, she, that's even worse. Okay, so she was with adults um, that she convinced about these spirits. And they started doing these, these terrible things. This is crazy, like, crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised. It kind of reminds me of, I saw a trailer to a movie a long time ago. Um, kind of like that but so 24-hour seances kidnapping the neighbor's kids burning their but but I still want to know how long this went on for like if all these children are missing and these obviously the people obsessed with these Ouija boards are gone for 24 hours at a time from their own families some of them all the whole family's there apparently so how long was this going on for weeks, days, you know? If that was happening in my neighborhood, I mean, well, this is Topeka. I, no. <laughs> I mean, that's it's highly plausible is what I'm saying. But if that was anywhere else, you would think that somebody, you know, like other neighbors might start getting alarmed. Hey. <laughs> I think the neighbors are opening portals in their basement and sacrificing children. Yes. Yes. Could you please come quick? No. Pretty sure it's not a meth lab. Right. All right. So I'm, and I'm not making fun of this. This isn't, that's absolutely tragic, but I, I don't, I don't understand how these things even like, I, I don't even understand how it happened that way. I guess. Um, ooh, here's here's a very very interesting one actually. Um, it is called 
beware of blue eyes. Um, more alluring than gray or brown eyes and declare the doctors who'd banish all blonde, blondes and hide blue eyes behind smoked glasses. And I'll tell you why I find this interesting. Because, um, let's see. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle. That's not why I find it interesting. I find it interesting because we always hear of the the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Nordic-type um, extraterrestrials or interdimensionals or, or what have you. So I have not read this article. I wanted to um, be able to read it, read it on this. This was published in numerous, across the, it looks like California, Kansas, Nebraska, New York, Pennsylvania, um, Florida, parts of Texas. And this was from 1921. Oh, and Saskatchewan, Canada also. I believe that was probably the first, well, no. It was published later. It's been published many, many, many times um, all over. So, and then again in 1912, um, so, so when you think of like, you know, extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, they, it's been, e even scary movies back then, back in the day had the, the white haired children. Oh my gosh. What movie was that? <laughs> and they were, they supposedly had blue eyes too. Um. Okay, so here's one from the London Times. So here's the first one that was published. Um, Beware of blue eyes, especially deep blue eyes, is a recent warning to London youths and maidens by a French student of human nature who hides his identity under the initials ACD. In fact, the more clear and innocent they look, the greater the deception of those exceptionally blue eyes. Having this opinion endorsed by others, I do not hesitate to say, beware. The blue eye so often depicted by the novelist is unfathomable. I have come into contact with several cases where the clearer, almost childlike expression has accompanied a downright lie. <laughs> what? This, but in every case, without attempting to delineate char character, one may safely assume for general application that blue-eyed people are inclined to be more treacherous or less likely to be staunch friends than others. The true blue eyes of the ballad singers are, it seems, not so true as they are sung, and it appears that the songmaker is at variance on this matter with the moralist. It is something of a shock to find blue-eyed husbands regarded as more faithless than husbands with eyes of other hues. But Mr. Thomas Lumsden, chief relieving officer of Leeds, backs up the opinion of ACD. He says that husbands with such eyes are prone to run away from their wives. <laughs> Mr. Lumsden indeed declares that in the case of a runaway husband, of which he has had experience, 90% have had eyes that are of this apparently dangerous color. While novelists only speculate on the period when married unhappiness is greatest, Mr. Lumsden has definite data. 
Married unrest, he says, shows itself between the ages of 30 and 40. Before 30, men are hopeful or in love, and after 40, either married or resigned. As a rule, he adds, a man only deserts his wife once, and wife desertion is generally most prevalent during times of industrial depression. A man sets forth to look for work and forgets to return. <laughs> and forgets to return. <laughs> Especially if his quest has been unsuccessful. Generally, however, if he is successful, he returns happy to his wife, especially if his eyes are not blue. <laughs> Mr. Lumsden's statements have roused a warm controversy on the merits and demerits of blue-eyed husbands. Dr. Albert Wilson, a psychological expert, does not wholly agree with Mr. Lumsden. My experience has been that the dark-eyed man is the more temperamental and fiery, said Dr. Wilson, but this is nothing new. It is mentioned in Revelations. You must have remarked, continued Dr. Wilson, that Mr. Lumsden bases his theory on his observations of poor people only. The nature of his work does not lead him in contact with the rich who are less prone to desert their wives for fear of unpleasant notor notoriety. <laughs> Another doctor put forward the suggestion that should Mr. Lumsden's assertions be correct, the irresponsibility of the blue-eyed husband, husband is derived from his love of adventure. Blue-eyed men, he said, are notoriously the best sailors, soldiers, and explorers. The call of adventure probably sounds so loudly that it induces them to throw up home ties. Anyway, whatever kind of husband the blue-eyed man makes, I'm sure that the brown-eyed girl makes a better husband of a man. Wait, what? <laughs> but in the words of Kipling, that is another story. <sighs> there's, there's so much. There's so much to to that. I, I don't even. I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> Um, and then on the same, I hadn't seen this before. See, I always discover new things. <laughs> um, so odd under their odd and interesting, the British Museum contained at this time, this was February 1921 contain more than 16,000 copies of the Bible. Rosalie is a nickname given by the French soldier to his bayonet. An engagement to Mary is often announced as a kissing feast in Hungary. A queen bee will lay as many as 3,000 eggs a day in the height of the season holy hell that's a lot like i i actually didn't know that and i wonder how accurate that is now i wonder if with the change in in agriculture and farming and everything else if that has affected how many eggs a queen bee lays in one day 3000 a day Birds of paradise, famed for their beautiful plumage, are closely related to the crows. That's interesting. 
In the Jutland battle, cruisers opened fire at a distance of over 11 miles. Huh. So... There's a lot of things during that era, you know, during the wars, things changed. There was a transition um, in the world because a lot of the women had to go to work. You know, it, people, roles were changing. Um, well, not necessarily changing. They They were just transitioning due to the state of the world at the time. So, um, It's it's interesting reading these things, you know. Do you, I I don't know if anybody else besides, besides me has fun doing that, but um, this blue-eyed one. There's tons of of articles about that, and it, and it's interesting to me because I think it's like anything, you know. I think I just think it's funny where these stereotypes come from because. Um, well, it, it, I mean, it is true, you know, there are, there were like the Nordic tribes and everything else. Um, and it is said that, that certain extraterrestrials, if you, you know, if you start going down that theory and that route have been able to hypnotize people and, and all these things. And yes, but I think it's just because in anything that stands out, kind of like red hair, you know, red hair stands out blue eyes, um, black eyes, things like that, amber, anything that's different, obviously different than everyone else. Um, it's kind of like cars. Like if, if you saw, you know, two accidents in the same year, especially back then in the same year that had the same colored car, then is that what you're going to base your statistics on? Well, I guess all red cars have this problem or yellow or whatever, you know? So I don't know. I don't think there's very much substantial evidence to those things, but I do think it's hilarious how they, um, how they wrote about it, how they were so openly judgmental and <laughs> everything back then, everything. I don't care who you were reading this. Would I mean, we, we can't write like that anymore. Not, not that, I mean, people, well, I guess there is, there are comedians and such who still do so, but, but it's not very popular because everybody gets offended. So there's another one. Um, there's a whole story about this when Rhode Island all of a sudden was, um, feared vampires. And I thought that was funny too, coming from, you know, like I said, a lot of my family lives on the East Coast. Um, so this article is from, let's see. It doesn't, I don't have the, um, I 
So this this was called um, Rhode Island Fears Vampires: Strange Survival of a Grisly Superstition Up in New England. Also, I wonder if, if these were just the main, I assume they're just the main papers. So New York, Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio published that same story. So I assume that was just, you know, the locations that actually had um, big newspapers and big print, you know. Some of the Midwestern states, but usually, usually not very many. Um, Anyways, people digging up bodies, the belief that people have died of consumption, leave, leave their graves and suck the blood of members of their own families, dooming them to a like fate. Recent ethnological research has disclosed something very extraordinarily in Rhode Island. It appears that the ancient vampire superstition still survives in that state. And within the last few years, many people have been digging up the bodies of defunct relatives for the purpose of burning their hearts. <sighs> Why? Why? Okay, don't try this on your own relatives in cemeteries or anywhere else for that matter. In one district comprising half a dozen towns in the immediate vicinity of Newport, scores of such exhumations have been made, the purpose being to prevent the dead from preying upon the living. The belief entertained is that a person who has died of consumption is likely to arise from the grave at night and suck the blood of surviving members of his or her own family, thus dooming them to a similar fate. The discovery of the survival in highly educated New England of a superstition dating back to the days of Sardanapalus and Nebuchadnezzar has been made by George R. Stetson, an ethnologist, ethnologist of repute. He has found it rampant in a district which includes the towns of Exeter, Foster, Kingston, East Greenwich, and many scattered hamlets. This region, where abandoned farms are numerous, is the tramping ground of the book agent, the chromo peddler, and the patent medicine man. <laughs> the social isolation away from the larger villages is as complete as it was two centuries ago. Here, Cotton Mather and the host of medical, clerical, and lay believers in the uncanny ideas of bygone centuries could still hold high carnival. Not merely the out-of-the-way agricultural folk, but the more intelligent people of the urban communities are strong in their belief in vampirism. So basically not the farmers. Like, that's why Kansas didn't print it, because we just, they were the unintelligent ones and didn't believe in such things. One case noted was that of an intelligent and well-to-do head of a family who some years ago lost several of his children by consumption. After they were buried, he dug them up and burned them in order to save the lives of their surviving brothers and sisters. There is one small, why didn't they just cremate them to begin with? Okay, wouldn't that save some digging and, you know, late nights? Yeah. 
There's one small village distant 15 miles from Newport where within the last few years, there have been at least half a dozen resurrections on this account. The most recent was made two years ago in a family where the mother and four children had already succumbed to consumption. The last of these children was exhumed and the heart was burned. Another instance was noted in a seashore town not far from Newport, possessing a summer hotel and a few cottages of hot weather residents. An intelligent man by trade, a mason, informed Mr. Stetson that he had lost two brothers by consumption. On the death of the second brother, his father was advised to take up the body and burn its heart. It? Oh, I guess they're referring to the body. He refused to do so, and consequently, he was attacked by the disease. Finally, he died of it. His heart was burned, and in the way of the rest of the fam family escaped. This frightful superstition is said to prevail in all the isolated districts of southern Rhode Island, and it survives to some extent in the large centers of population. Sometimes the body is burned and not merely the heart, the ashes being scattered. In some parts of Europe, the belief still has a hold on the popular mind. On the continent from 1727 to 1735, there prevailed an epidemic of vampires. Really? Um, thousands of people died and was supposed from having their blood sucked by creatures that came to their bedsides at night with googling eyes and lips eager for the life fluid of the victim. I don't know that because it looks like a part of the newspaper is ripped. I don't know if this says Scotia or I think that's what it says. It was understood that the demon might be destroyed by digging up the body and piercing it through with a sharp instrument, after which it was decapitated and burned. Relief was found in eating the earth of the vampire's grave. What? In the Levant, Levant, the corpse was cut to pieces and boiled in wine. Why? Why? Like, did they drink the wine? I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. So they're eating the earth of the vampire's grave boiling parts of the corpse in wine. Do they eat that too? There is no hope for a person once chosen as a prey by, by a vampire. Slowly but surely, he or she was destined to fade and sicken, receiving meanwhile nightly visits from the monster. This is interesting though, because this goes back to, you know, I had been researching stories of fairy folk uh, from historic Scotland and Ireland. And there's so many resemblances to, now, now don't get me wrong. I 100% believe there are actually, you know, fairy folk and, and interdimensionalists and all of this. But I do know that, that a lot of these stories can get intertwined and overlapped and everything else, one from the other. So a lot of them do, you know, when they talk about a creature, googly-eyed creature coming in a person's bedroom in the middle of the night and, and biting them or sucking their blood or something, 
that has been reported by many, many experiencers as well and contactees. So um, I, I think a lot of those are, are interchangeable. Um, so, so slowly but surely here she was destined to fade and sicken, receiving meanwhile nightly visits from the monster. Even death was no relief. For, and here came in the most horrible part of the superstition. The victim, once dead and laid in the grave, was compelled to become a vampire and in his turn to take up the business of preying on the living. Thus, vampir vampirism was indefinitely propagated. Realize, if you please, that at that period when science was hardly born as yet, no knowledge had been spread among the people to fight off superstition, Belief in the reality of this fearful thing was absolute. It existence, its, I, its, its existence, I think it meant to say, was officially recognized and military commissions were appointed for the purpose of opening the graves of suspected vampires and taking such measures as were necessary for destroying the latter. Vampirism became a plague more dreaded than any form of disease. Everywhere people were dying from the attacks of the blood-sucking monsters. Each victim became becoming in turn a night prowler in pursuit of human prey. Terror of the mysterious and unearthly peril filled all hearts. Evidence enough as to the prevalence of the mischief was afforded by the condition of many of the bodies that were dug up by the commission appointed for the purpose. In many instances, corpses which had been buried for weeks and even months were found fresh and lifelike. Sometimes fresh blood was actually discovered on their lips. What proof could be more convincing? And as much as well as was well known, the buried body of a vampire is preserved and nourished by its nightly repast. The blood of, on the lips, of course, was that of the victim of the night before. What? The faith in vampirism entertained by the public at large was as complete as that which is felt in a discovery of modern science. It was an actual epidemic that threatened the people spreading rapidly and only to be checked by the most drastic measures. The contents of every suspected grave were investigated and any corpse found in such a condition as that described was prom promptly subjected to treatment. This meant that a stake was driven through the chest and the heart being taken out was either burned or chopped into small pieces. For in this way, only could a vampire be deprived of power to do mischief. In one case, a man who was unburied sat up in his coffin, fresh blood on his lips. The official in charge of the ceremonies held a crucifix before his face and saying, do you recognize your savior? Chop the unfortunate's head off. Wow, this person presumably had been buried alive in a cataleptic trance. So they didn't... Fresh blood on his. What if he bit his lip while he was in the coffin? Like, how did they? So they they decapitated a man who was wrongfully about to be buried because he sat up in his coffin, and that wasn't like that wasn't murder or anything. <laughs> the records of the measures adopted during that period for the suppression of vampirism are official and perfectly authentic. There's no doubt that the accounts which they give of the finding of bodies fresh and undecayed are true. Wow. I'm going to look that one up too. 
how is a phenomenon to be accounted for? Nobody can say it with certainty, but it may be that the fright into which people were thrown by the epidemic had the effect of predisposing nervous persons to catalepsy. In a word, people were buried alive in a condition where the vital functions being suspended, they remained as if dead for a while. It is a common thing for a cataleptic to bleed at the mouth just before returning to consciousness. According to the popular superstition, the vampire left his or her body in the grave while engaged in nocturnal prowls. The epidemic described prevailed all, all over southern, southeastern Europe, being at its worst in Hungary and Serbia. It is supposed to have originated in Greece, where a belief was entertained to the effect that Latin Christians buried in that country could not decay in their graves being under the ban of the Greek church. Huh. I don't think I ever knew that either. The cheerful notion was that they got out of their graves at night and pursued the occupation of ghouls. The superstition as to ghouls is very ancient and undoubtedly of oriental origin. Generally speaking, however, a ghoul is just the opposite of a vampire, being a living person who preys on dead bodies. What? Generally speaking, a ghoul is just the opposite of a vampire, being a living person who preys on dead bodies, while a vampire is a dead person that feeds on the blood of the living. If you had your choice, which would you rather be, a vampire or a ghoul? That's interesting um, for many reasons. But, but yes, it, it's been documented throughout history, um, I guess, the catalepsy, they called it, where the, it was just the nervous system that shut down, but the person wasn't actually dead. They just, they just were like being in a coma, basically. Um, but, but a lot of that sounds like uh, which I, I'm sure a lot of those stories of vampires and, and many of the things back then came from people who were actually either A, who weren't dead yet, because if a person wasn't dead, you know, think of how many stories they have in hospitals and such where a person's not actually, like if they're in a coma or, or they're in um, intensive care, things like that, or in a bad accident or something happened. Um, and they astral travel, they astral project, and somebody else in their family sees them at a different location or, or something, something like that. Can you imagine back then? Like, I bet things like that were actually what was taking place, and this is how they perceived them. But it's sad. I wonder how many people actually died via, by terrible decapitation because they had this cat catalepsy event and sat up in their coffin when they're about like at their funeral they're about to bury them but they weren't actually dead and they got their head chopped off again how are how did we even make it this long how how did we make it this long Also, let me know in the comments, or you can email me at the missing piece with Trish. 
at gmail.com. Let me know if you like these articles and you like, um, you know, things that I find like this because I will do more of it. Um, I thought it's just kind of a change, um, you know, change from the norm. So I'm going back to, and I can show these also because I don't need, these don't have copyright. I can show these on my next time if you want to see them. Um, there was one called, um, Exposing the Weird Secrets of Mediums and Spies, which I find intriguing considering, you know, I myself am a medium. Um, So this was from the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. Um, however, there are so many back then. This was um, 1922. Oh, no, wrong one. However, this was interesting, too. Um, so many of these came from from Canada, from Saskatchewan, um, but this one was was during the war um, when they talked about the mediums and stuff. War spies who posed as salesmen by Sir Basil Thompson. He was the chief of the yard since 1913. This was printed in from the Leader Post, August 12, 1922. Um, early in 1916, the Germans began an and to organize by receiving offices in Holland. Usually, they pretended to be legitimate commercial agencies. Sometimes one member of a not-too-prosperous firm of commission agents would lend his offices for the, for the purpose. Sometimes a business, a new business, was open in some upper room where a few samples of cheap cigars and other goods were on view. Quite early in the year, it was discovered that some foreigners um, who could write decent English was sending regular communications to one of these addresses in a simple secret ink. And it was evident that he was a sort of the sort of person who would find out something which might at any time be of, of great use to the enemy the the letters he posted at various places in in london and there was no clue at all of this sender's address that's interesting i've i've heard of things you know like this through throughout time like all spies he was continually uh demanding money and it was hoped after some time that a remittance from holland would disclose his identity um, but in the end, the de denouncement came about in quite another way. A, a letter was intercepted in the censorship, which disclosed secret writing. It was not in the usual hand and discriminatory words that C, that was the, you know, name, had, had gone to Newcastle and that the...
courier was sending the communication from 201 instead. Sorry, the part of the, the edge of this where it was scanned was cut off. I remember very well the morning when this sentence was shown to me. The postmark was Deptford. I might or might not be, or which might or might not, Deptford 201, which might or might not be the number of a house. We rang up Deptford Police Station and asked for a list of the streets in their area, which ran to 201 houses. There was, a, there was only one uh, Deptford High Street, and the occupant of that house had a German name, Peter Hahn Baker and Confectioner. No one was more surprised than the stout little baker when a taxi deposited a number of police officers at his door. He proved to be a British subject and to have been resident of Deptford for some years. While he was being put into the cab, a search was made of his premises, and in a back room, the police found a complete outfit for secret writing neatly shoved away in a cardboard box. Han's Russian visitor. When seated in my armchair, Han was not at all communicative. He confessed to know nothing of C, and when further pressed, he refused to answer spike what or answer any questions, but patient inquiry among his neighbors provided a witness who remembered that a tall Russian gentleman had been visiting Han at frequent intervals. His name was believed to be Muller, and his address, a boarding house in Carnesbury. This limited the field of search. The register was of every board house, was scrutinized, and within a few hours, the police found the name of Muller. The landlady of the boarding house confirmed the suggestion that he was a Russian and that he had lately gone to Newcastle to see some friends. The search was then transferred, wow, to Newcastle. And within a few hours, Muller was found, arrested, and brought to jail. He was a tall, square, worried-looking person, anxious only to come an opportunity of clearing himself. He had never seen Han, had never been in Germany, and could not even speak the language. For some time, he adhered to the story that he was Russian. An inquiry into his past showed that he was one of those cos cosmopolitan roving Germans who are hotel keepers in one place, commercial sellers in another. At some time, they have all been motor car agents and touts. He spoke English with scarcely any trace of foreign accent. With his glib tongue, he had gone through the usual spy routine of making love to impressionable young women and winning acquaintances by the promise of partnership in profitable speculations. He had some claim for registering himself as a Russian, for he had been born in 
in Russian, spoke Russian as well as Finnish, Dutch, French, German, and English. Han, on the other hand, was merely a tool. <laughs> Spies later's confession. About the middle of 1915, we learned that on a steamer bound from Rotterdam to Buenos Aires was an Argentine citizen named Conrad, later, who was believed to be carrying dispatches from Berlin to the German embassy in Madrid later was removed from the steamer and brought to london he said he was a shipping clerk that he had come to europe for holiday and was now on his way back to buenos aires he gave a long and rather worrisome account of his holiday adventures in germany and holland and nothing could be done until clockwork had run down then we said but why were you trying why were you going to spain there was another burst of eloquence, but no reply to that particular question. When, when, after he paused for breath, he was asked, why were you going to Spain? At last he could hear, bear it no more. He jumped from his chair and said, well, if you will know, I'm going to Spain. And if you want to know why, I am carrying a de... I can't, oh my gosh, I can't read that. A, a, I believe it says a dispatch to Prince Radebor, the German ambassador of Madrid. Thank you. And where's the dispatch? I have not got it. It is sewn up in the life belt in my cabin. That was all we wanted to know. Leighton went to an internment camp. The wire, the wireless was got to work. That doesn't make sense. And in, in the course of the dispatch was found in the life belt as he sailed. It was quite useful. Every now and then doubtful persons captured at sea came to us from far afield. In October 1915, a boarding officer in the Mediterranean who was examining passengers on board the Blue Funnel liner found a man who was carrying a false passport believed to be forged. He was detained and sent to Egypt. In Cairo, luck was against him. While he was being interrogated and his imagination was soaring in full flight, a British officer who had known him in former years chanced to pass through the room and recognized him. Hello, Von Gump Gumpner. To which point he cried, slapping him on the back. After that, it was useless to dissemble, and he gave his name as Baron Otto Von Gumpenberg and said that he had been squadron commander in the death's head hussars and had been involved in a scandal for which he was arrested and imprisoned for seven months on his release he became a vagabond adventurer in constantinople he was aide de camp to enver pasha later he attached himself to prince wilhelm of weed in his futile attempt to govern albania wow this guy this guy had some ambition when war broke out, he was called back to Germany to serve as a trooper, and according to his own account, he served for 18 months on the Russian front with such distinction that when he returned wounded to Germany, his commission was restored to him, and he was posted to the command of a troop at the front. But at this moment, there happened to be a scheme for stirring up the tribes in North Africa, and he was dispatched to see what he could do with the, the Sinisai. Then there were the cigar salesmen as spies. 
The Germans now adopted commerce as the best ever for their agents. England was to be flooded with commercial travelers, especially travelers in cigars. The censor be began to pick up messages containing orders for enormous qualities of cigars for naval ports, such as Port Portmouth, Chatham, Davenport, and Dover. The senders turned out to be furnished with Dutch passports, though their nationality doubtful. Now something happened to be known about their supposed employers in Holland, who kept one little back office in which a few would sample, uh, in which a few moldy sample were exposed, and yet, they were with a traveler in the southern counties and another sending orders from Newcastle. Naval ratings are not abstainers from tobacco, but they're not known to be in the habit of consuming large quantities of Havana cigars. The travelers, one named Hike, Petrus Marinus Jansen, and the other named Wilhelm Johannes Ruse, were found doing the sights of London. Jansen was questioned first. He was a self-possessed person of about 30 years of age, and he claimed to be a sailor. He knew no German. In fact, he had never been in Germany, and being a Dutchman, he had a dislike for Germans. Well, why, he was asked, did, did his employers, Dirks and Company, engage a sailor to travel in cigars? To that, he had no answer, except that he had been unsuccessful in obtaining a berth as officer on a steamer. A friend had introduced him to, Dr., to Mr. Dirks, because he could speak English and was looking for work. He said that he was the only traveler that Dirks had in England. We asked him whether he knew a boy or a man named Ruse. No, he said, he had never heard of him. He was then sent to another room while Ruse was brought in. He too was a seaman, uh, a big powerful man with the cut of a German seaman. And he too said that he was a traveler for Dirks and company and Dirks had two travelers himself and Jansen. Would he know Jansen if he saw him? Certainly he would. Well, so they knew each other and attempted suicide. Jansen was brought uh, again into the room. He made a faint sign with his eyes and lips to Ruse, but of course it was too late. Is this the man you say you know? He was asked. He nodded and Jansen was silent. On the way over to Cannon Row, Ruse suddenly dashed at a glass door which opened into the yard, smashed the panes, and jabbed his naked wrist on the jagged fragments of glass in the hope of cutting an artery. He was taken to Westminster Hospital to be bandaged and later was removed to Brixton Prison, where he was put under observation as a potential suicide. The code used by these men was simple enough. They would send telegrams for 10,000 Cubanas, 4,000 Rothschilds, 3,000 Coronas, and so on. A message telegraphed from Portsmouth of the kind would mean that there was three battleships, four cruisers, and ten destroyers in the harbor. And these messages, so interpreted, corresponded with the actual facts on the dates of the telegrams. That's interesting. Neither man could produce any evidence that he had transacted bona fide business with their cigars. They could not produce one genuine order. They were brought to trial for espionage and were convicted. A few days later, both made confessions. Jansen actually gave some useful information about the German spy organization in Holland. They met their end stoically. Jansen was shot first. Bruised asked for a last favor to be allowed to finish his cigarette. That done, he threw it away with a gesture as though that represented all the vanities of his world. And then he sat down in the chair with quiet and concern. 
The news of the execution soon reached Holland and the Germans began to find it very difficult to obtain recruits from neutral countries. Many musicians were also spies um, during May and June of 1915 in about a fortnight, no less than seven enemy spies were arrested. The most spectacular were Reginald Roland, whose real name was George T. Breakow, and Mrs. Lizzie Wortham. Breakow was the son of pian piano forte manufacturer in Stetton, and he was himself a pianist. It is curious to reflect that professional musicians should have formed a respectable proportion of the detected spies. One would have thought that it was the last class that would be able to report intelligently on naval and military matters. Brickhow spoke English fluently and knew enough Americanisms to pose Plosby as a rich American traveling in England for his wealth. Before he left Holland, he was furnished with the address of Lizzie Wortham a German woman who had married a naturalized German and had thus acquired British nationality. She was a stout and rather flashy-looking person of the boarding house type, and she had been in England for some years. She was separated from her husband, but on terms that made her independent. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> he had to be okay with it? I mean, I'm not judging. You do you. <laughs> like, she was equally at home in Berlin. The, the Hog and London. Brickhow, who appeared to be possessed of a considerable sum of money, was at once accorded a warm welcome. The pair hired horses from a riding school and rode in the park during the mornings. They took their lunch in expensive restaurants, and Lizzie became intoxicated with his kind of life and waxed so extravagant that Brickhow had to expostulate and report the matter to his employer. She would no longer travel without a maid. Wow. So it was decided between the two that the best working arrangement would be for the woman to do the field work and for Brickow to work up her reports in London. Um, so Mrs. Wortham went to Scotland, hired a motor car, and drove about the country, picking up gossip about the Grand Fleet. Her questions to naval officers were, however, so imprudent that special measures were taken. Breakhow's address was discovered and in due course, the two were brought to New Scotland Yard for interrogation. The artistic temperament of Breakhow was not equal to the ordeal. His pretense of being a rich American broke down immediately, and he was aghast to find how much the police knew about his secret movements. Though he made no confession, he returned to Cannon Row in a state of great nervous tension. Lizzie Wortham, on the other hand, was tough, brazen, and impudent, claiming that as a British subject, she had a right to travel where she would. She declined to sit still in her chair, but walked up and down the room, flirting a large silk handkerchief as she was practicing a new dance step so this lady <laughs> so the dude just got scared and told them everything basically the woman while being interrogated picture this that she is walking up just pacing back and forth in the room holding a handkerchief while she's like learning new dance moves. Further inquiries showed that unlike the previous American passports carried by spies, which were genuine documents stolen by the German Foreign Office, 
This passport was a forgery right through. Wow. So the American Eagle on the official seal had his claws turned round the wrong way and his tail lacked a feather or two. The very red paper on which the seal was impressed did not behave like the paper on genuine documents when touched with acid, nor was the texture of the passport paper itself the same. It also transpired that Brikow had been in America continuously from 1908, that he had got in into touch with von Poppen's organization, which had sent him back to Germany for service in this country. For this purpose, he became an inmate of the espionage school in Antwerp, where he was taught the tricks of the trade. Like they actually had a school for this, which were quite familiar to us. He had also a commercial code for use when telegrams had to be sent. Wow. Brikow had maintained throughout that he knew no German, but his assurance began to break down in the loneliness of a prison cell. He had a strong imagination, no doubt. The thought that his female accomplice might be betraying him worked strongly on his feelings. One morning, I went over with the naval officer to see how he was. There was a question about signing for his property, and he was sent into the room for the purpose. When he found himself alone with us, he said suddenly, am I to be tried for my life? I understand that you are to be tried. What is the penalty for what I've done? Up to this point, he had made no confession. Is it death? I do not know, I said. You have not been tried. I can tell from your face that it is death. I must know. I have to think of my old mother in Stetton. I want to write a full confession. I told him that, of course, he was free to write what he pleased, but that anything he did write would almost certainly be used against him at this trial. Never mind, he said. I've carried the secret long enough. Now I want to tell the whole truth. So paper and ink were supplied to him, and he wrote his confession. Bushman badly coached. Of all the spies that were convicted and executed, the man for whom I felt most sorry was for Fernando Bushman. He was a gentleman by birth. He had no need of money for he was married to the daughter of a rich soap manufacturer in Dresden, who had kept him liberally supplied with funds for his studies in aviation. He was quite a good violinist, and he had all the instincts of a cultivated musician. He was of German origin, but his father had become a naturalized Brazilian, and he himself had Latin blood in his veins. He was born in Paris, uh, but his boyhood was spent in Brazil, where he attended a German school. He had invented an airplane, and in 1911, the French government allowed him to use the aerodrome at Issy for experimental purposes. For the three years before the war, he had been traveling all over Europe, and when hostilities broke out, the German Secret Service got a hold of him. It speaks volumes of the stupidity of the directors of the German espionage school in Antwerp that they should have selected as a disguise for such a man as Bushman the role of commercial driver. The imposture was bound to be discovered at once. He was far too well-dressed and well-spoken, and he knew nothing whatever about trade. He arrived in London with a forged passport and put up at a good hotel with his violin, not usually part of the luggage of a commercial traveler. After a few days, he moved to the lodging, his lodgings to Lothborough Road, Brixton, 
and thence to lodgings in South Kensington. This, he thought, was enough to fit him for moving about in England. He visited Portsmouth and Southampton from certain minutes from certain minute notes found among his papers, it became evident that his one qualification, his knowledge of aeronautics, was not to be turned to account. He was to be employed as a naval spy. Wow. Unfortunately for him, he ran short of money and was compelled to write to Holland for fresh supplies. He was rested at his lodging in South Kensington and was found to be quite penniless. When the detective arrived, he said, what have you against me? I will show you everything. Then he reeled off his lesson. He was in England for the purpose of selling cheese, bananas, potatoes, safety razors, and odds and ends. And in France, he had sold uh, citric acid cloth and rifles. He implied that his employers did a miscell miscellaneous business, almost unrivaled in commercial uh, goods. But when he said they were Dirks and Company and of the hog, we pointed out that they occupied one room and were cigar merchants. Moreover, it was found that his passport was written in the well-known handwriting of Flores, who used to instruct German spies in Rotterdam. This man had been a schoolmaster and his characteristic handwriting was well known. You'd think they'd have somebody else do it. That's... Um, Crazy. Um, the last one, I have psychic phenomena in spirit. Um, so psychic, this is spirit materialization during the, the different wars. Um, Psychic phenomena and spirit intercourse have been widely discussed during the past few years, especially since the Great War and the wonders attributed to spirit mediums are perhaps the only ph phenomenons of modern times that can be classed as miracles. Whether genuine psychic phenomena exist is an open question on which many authorities disagree, but all enlightened students of the supernatural do agree that many frauds have been foisted upon an unsuspecting public by unscrupulous fakers. The exposure of those swindles is of vital importance to those who believe in psychic phenomena. For when the fraudulent mediums have been driven from the field, skeptical investigators can study the subject with an unprejudiced view. The materialization of a spirit has always been one of the most effective tricks in the repertoire of the fraudulent medium and has been exposed on several occasions. Nevertheless, it is still presented when a proper opportunity arrives. Huh. The production of the atmosphere of a materialization seance is the first step in the accomplishment of the materialization. A group of people assemble in silence in a darkened room are in a fit mood for seeing things. We've always said this too. And the fraudulent medium usually sees to it that they are not disappointed. The group forms a circle, each holding hands of his neighbor suddenly. The floor near them appears a tiny ray of flickering light. It gradually expands, rises, and moves about until it becomes a glittering mass of phosphorescence. Finally, another form um, seems to emerge from the jumble, and at last the luminous figure of a person stands near the circle. The spirit stay on this earth 
is however short. The form gradually fades out, growing smaller and smaller until it is entirely gone. The lights of the room are turned on and everyone breathes a sigh of relief after nerve wracking experience. <laughs> so, so this is how much trouble they went to. Like I, the first essentials of fraudulent materialization is the proper sort of a garment, a white dress, painted with phosphorus or a concoction known as luminous paint is used basically paint that glows the person who is to impersonate the spirit is clothed in the painted dress which is completely covered by a black sack the impersonator slips into the room after the the guests have been ex or after the legates have been ex oh lights sorry they have, it was a typo, have been extinguished and takes his place near the circle of sisters. The first part of the materialization is affected by the spirit raising a bit of the black cloth sack, exposing a bit of the luminous garment. This is moved about the floor for a while and gradually the sack is lifted higher and higher until it is entirely removed. The spirit, however, remains huddled up and resembles a weird shapeless mass. At last, the spirit arises to its true form. The effect of this brilliant person personage is in the midst of a darkened room, must be seen to be appreciated. If the spirit's garment is of soft wavy silk properly painted, it gives off a soft radiant light that completely astounds the spectators. What? They went to way too much, way too much work back then just to try to fake these things. Anyways, that is all I have for tonight. Um, I thought these things were interesting. I wanted to share and there is actually, there's, there's a illustration of this. This is crazy. I'm going to clip this article. Anyways, thank you all for, for tuning in, listening, viewing. Thank you for subscribing, liking my page. Um, go head over to YouTube where I have also been working on. I need to update it more. Obviously, I'm, I'm getting around to all of these things. My um, personal YouTube site, which is The Missing Piece with Trish Mo, Um so I'm up to 25 subscribers now on that one since, you know, since I switched over from, um, from our main UPR insight. I also have um, the playlist of all of my archives, almost all of them on SoundCloud now um, under my own The Missing Piece with Trish Mao um, as well, which, which was just created recently. I don't even know if I have any followers on that one because I just made it. Um, so if you like my content, um, like, subscribe, comment, send me an email, um, and we will be back next week. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for, for joining.